good morning. And once again, a very warm welcome to Reality Church London. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Bijan, a pastor for our church. And with Ephesians 2 now open in front of us, let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our Bible study. Our God, thank you for this opportunity to look at this passage of Scripture. And as we talk this morning about the gospel, I ask that you would help us to not just understand and learn more about the gospel, but that you would help us experience it, that we would be changed as a result of what we encounter in these words this morning. So please be with us now. We give you this time, and I ask for my words to be clear and to be helpful, and most of all, that we would see Jesus Christ. And so we pray all this in his name. And everyone said, amen. There's a couple people on our staff team here at Reality Church London who love the Christmas season. And so as soon as we get to September, they are talking about our Christmas services and their favorite Christmas foods and their favorite Christmas songs. So we had one of those discussions this past week, and I mentioned that one of my favorite Christmas carols, Christmas songs, is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Now out of love, I'm not going to sing it now because that would be traumatizing for you. Not a very good singer. But I love that Christmas song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. What's a herald? What's a herald? That's not a word we use very much these days. But in olden times, a herald was someone who came announcing good news. And the most common way that you would have encountered a herald when that word was more commonly used was after a military battle. So imagine for a moment your country is engaged in a battle with a foreign nation. And you're there in your main city, and you know the army is off fighting, fighting on your behalf, trying to win the victory. If a herald came back to your city, you knew that they would be bringing good news. They would say, gospel, good news. The victory has been won. The army was successful. Rejoice, we're safe and we're free. And so a herald would bring good news. But if that same battle went the other way and the enemy was victorious, your enemy had beaten you, then you wouldn't receive a herald, but there would be an advisor who would come running into the presence of the king. And the advisor would say, quick, man the defenses, grab our weapons. We have to fight and defend or we're doomed. A herald brought good news about an accomplishment of victory on your behalf. And an advisor brought advice about what you needed to do to save yourself. At Christmas, we do not sing, hark the advisor angels sing. We say, hark the herald angels sing. Because the Christmas message, and actually the message of Christianity, is about news which God has accomplished for you and not advice about what you have to go and do to save yourself. The whole message of Christianity can be summarized in that phrase, gospel or good news about what God has done to save and rescue his people. Now, for the past few weeks here at Reality Church London, we've been in a series talking about our church's vision and values. What makes our church tick? What animates us as we seek to love and serve this city? And today, we're talking about the gospel. And my hope is that we see the foundational importance of the gospel, of God's good news, for everything that our church seeks to be and seeks to do in this city. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, the passage that Pastor Andrew just read, 
is perhaps one of the most profound and beautiful statements of the gospel in the whole Bible. And my goal today, and we're coming to the Lord's Supper, we're going to celebrate communion. My goal is to meditate with you as simply and as beautifully as I can on what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. What is the good news of the Christian faith? And to do so in such a way that prepares us to receive of Jesus as we come to communion as a church family after our sermon. And so that's our task today, to look at this passage and to see what is the gospel? What is the good news of the Christian faith? And I want to do that looking at this passage by showing you three things. First, we have to see a hard truth. Second, the good news. And then third, the effect. What happens when the good news comes into your life? So a hard truth, the good news, and the effect of the good news when it comes into your life. So first, we have to see a hard truth. And it's right there in verse 1 of our passage. The author says this, You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You might say that the ultimate good news of the gospel begins with this really hard truth, an acknowledgement for every human being that apart from and cut off from Jesus Christ, every single person is dead in their sins. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it's talking about a spiritual reality. We're all living and breathing physically, but the author, Paul, is describing first and foremost a spiritual reality. That as relates to God, as relates to having a relationship with God, the creator of everything, in yourself, apart from Jesus, you are dead. Dead in your sins. And more than that, we have to know and feel the weight of this. Paul's not saying you are sick, or you're weak, or you're broken. Because if you're weak, or sick, or broken, that means you still have some capacity. You still have some agency. A sick person can make their way to their GP. A broken person or a weak person can do rehab and help themselves feel better. But a dead person can do nothing to fix or save themselves. You have complete lifelessness. And what Paul's saying is that our condition, apart from Jesus, is spiritual deadness. And we are totally unable, we might say hopeless and helpless, at saving and fixing ourselves. The Bible gives us a really good image of this. In John chapter 11, Jesus comes to the tomb of one of his friends, Lazarus. Lazarus had died. And if you imagine the scene, Jesus and some others make their way to the tomb of Lazarus. And no one would have thought to say, hey, Lazarus, guess what? (laughs) Jesus is here. And Jesus is really wonderful. He's awesome. So why don't you just come out of the tomb, meet Jesus, and he can make your life better. No one would have said that. Because when you encounter a dead person, you know that anything short of a supernatural work of bringing that person back to life can't help them, can't save them. That's the condition that we're all in, according to this passage, prior to and apart from meeting Jesus. Now, what is sin? If the Bible says we're dead in our sin, what is sin? We talked about this a little bit last week. But sin is not first and foremost a set of behaviors doing wrong or bad things. But according to the Bible, sin fundamentally is actually a posture of the heart. It's actually a posture of the heart that says to God, I don't want you and I don't need you. It's a kind of God avoidance. 
And what happens is when you avoid God and you seek to substitute God for something else, what we do is we take all the things in our life, even the good things, and we turn them into God's substitutes. So we look to career or to romance or to friendship or to achievement or even to religion and being nice and helping other people to fill the void and the ache that's there that actually only God was able to fill and meant to fill in the first place. And so what sin does is it turns anything, even good things, into God's substitutes as we forsake God and actually have self on the throne. And this passage, as it describes what it means to be dead in sin, to be spiritually lifeless before God, shows us what are the influences. I want to show you this briefly. If you look back at the passage, you say, what does being dead in sin feel like? What does it look like? What's the practical experience of that? Look at what Paul says, and I'll just give you the verses, and then I'll try to summarize it. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ways of this world, so think society, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's a spiritual enemy, the devil or Satan, in whom is now at work and the sons of those who are disobedient. And then verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. That's self. So in other words, when Paul says you're dead in sin, then he describes these influences that contribute to our deadness. And he says, on one hand, it's society, the ways of this world. That is to say, there's a culture, there's a world value system all around us that we live in that is opposed to God. On the other hand, there's a real spiritual enemy out there. To be a Christian, to believe the Bible is to believe that there are spiritual forces at work in the world. And so there's a real enemy of God's people. But then also, Paul says, but there's also this internal inclination to gratify the cravings of our flesh. And so the question is, well, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with us? Well, we can't just blame society, and we can't just blame Satan, and we can't even just blame self. It's all of that together that is at work in the forces of our deadness to sin. And let me just say, as we conclude this hard truth, this is the fundamental problem of our world. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, this is the beginning of the story of the Bible, When God made Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden. He wanted to have a perfect relationship with them in which the world was free of sin and sickness and suffering. But Adam and Eve, what they do? They turned from God. They rebelled against him. They said, we don't want your way. We're going to do it our way. And in that moment, sin came into the world because they wanted something else in place of God. So God said, okay, you can have that. And in that moment, as they turned away from God, when sin comes into the world, Do you realize that instantly everything breaks? As soon as sin enters into the world, everything breaks. So think about it. In the garden, they at one time enjoyed a perfect relationship with God, but now they hide from him. They actually hide themselves from the presence of God, playing hide and seek with the creator of everything. I mean, you always lose when you do that. Also, though, in the garden, we see that their relationships with each other are broken. No sooner does sin enter into the world that God comes to Adam and says, what did you do? And do you know what Adam does? The woman you gave me made me do it. He blames. That's the first example of blame shifting in the whole Bible. Instead of owning up and taking responsibility, he blames the person next to him. And we see human relationships starting to be broken. 
Also there in the garden, when sin comes into the world, Adam and Eve, it says, realize they're naked. Which is a way of saying they feel vulnerable and ashamed. They feel uncomfortable in their own skin. And so that sense that it's not just there are wrong things that have been done, but there's something wrong with me, that sense of shame, that starts in the garden. And finally, we see in the garden that God says, now because of this sin, thorns and thistles are going to grow from the ground. What was once just a rose now has thorns. In other words, your relationship with creation itself is broken. Now we could go on, but what's the point? Sin is the fundamental problem of our world. In our relationship with God, with others, with self, and even with all of creation, it's broken. And so this is the hard truth that we must accept and acknowledge according to the passage if the gospel is ever going to be good news. That we are dead in our sins and our transgressions. That we are unable to save or rescue ourselves. But we stand completely and desperately in need of God's activity. And the good news of the passage and the good news of this sermon is that we're not quite done yet. There's verse 4 and beyond. And verse 4 begins this next section that we're titling the good news. Now verse 4 begins in the Greek language, but God. But God. And that is maybe the most two profound words in all the Bible. You were dead, you were hopeless, you were helpless, but God. God intervened. God did something. God acted and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And what did he do? Well, look at verse 5. God, who was rich in love, verse 5, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions and sins. Now, those five words, made us alive with Christ, that's a summary of what it means to be a Christian. And what I want to do now is spend a couple of minutes meditating with you on just those five words. What does it mean that a Christian is someone who has been made alive with Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be made alive with Jesus Christ. So here's the first thing I want you to see. Made alive. Being a Christian is as radical as going from death to life. A lot of people sometimes think that Christianity is about being moral. It's about obeying rules, about being a good person. So you say, well, what makes you a Christian? Well, I go to church, and I read my Bible, and I do nice things, and I help people, and I serve the poor. That's all important. But that's not being dead to alive. That's just being a nice person. Those are important things, but those things by themselves don't make somebody a Christian. Others think that Christianity is about getting more information, knowing about God, studying the Bible, doing research, learning your prayers. But a Christian is not somebody who was ignorant and is now informed. A Christian is not someone who was a jerk and is now nicer. A Christian is someone who was dead and is now alive. In other words, it's not a self-improvement project. It's a complete granting by God of a new self. You who were dead have been made alive and made alive with Christ. Those two words could be the subject of numerous sermons and books upon books made alive with Christ. Hear me. Being a Christian is not seeing Jesus in a disconnected kind of way as your example. 
Oh, look at what Jesus has done. I'm now going to follow his example. I'm going to walk in his footsteps. Not exactly. Being a Christian, first and foremost, is about being with Christ. That is, in such a living relationship with him, that what is true of Jesus is now true of you. You are with him. The Bible uses language of union, of intimacy, of closeness, of oneness. And being a Christian does not mean Jesus is my example. I try to follow in his steps. Being a Christian means I am with Christ intimately, personally, closely. How are you with Christ? In his dying and in his rising. The Bible says that to be a Christian is to be with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. So let's just unpack that for a few minutes. What does it mean to be with Christ in his dying? Well, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 puts it like this. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul says, I was crucified with Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross in a very real way, so did I. And now I live, but it's not actually me, it's Jesus in me. You say, what does that mean? Here's what it means. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he wasn't just dying as an example, he was dying as a representative and as a substitute. He was dying for you, and he was dying in your place. So Jesus on the cross is actually taking something that was yours upon himself, namely your deadness and sin. When Jesus died, he was dying, bearing in himself all the guilt and all the shame and all the suffering that sin has brought into the world, your sin. And he takes it, and he bears it on his shoulders as a sacrifice. To what end? For what purpose? So that you, as you died with him, could receive from him all of his righteousness and perfection. The old theologian Martin Luther called this the great exchange. A more recent pastor called it the great switcheroo. It's simply the idea that on the cross, Jesus takes all of our sin and we receive all of his righteousness. So you are with Jesus in his dying, and in his death, he becomes the perfect satisfaction for your sin. And more than that, you're with Jesus in his rising. It's not just that he died for you, but he rose again. And in rising again after his death, Jesus actually decisively beats the powers of sin and evil and darkness. It's as if Jesus was in a battle, a toe-to-toe fight with sin itself, and the resurrection proves that he's victorious. The resurrection, the idea that three days after death, Jesus literally and physically came back to life. And our passage in verse 6 says this, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. That is to say, Jesus rose, and if you're in him, so did you. That means that the power of sin has actually been broken in your life. Now, it doesn't always feel like that. Sometimes in the day-to-day lived experience of our world, sin feels like a force that we can't shake. But the promise of the New Testament is that if you've been raised with Christ, if you've actually been with Jesus in his death, you're going to be with him in his rising. And so the power of sin has been broken in your life. You may not always feel it. You've been freed from the penalty of sin. You're no longer under the crushing debt of owing to God perfection. And finally, one day, ultimately, you'll be free from the very presence of sin. 
in which those things that you know you ought not to do but still do anyway, even those things will be taken away. The power and the penalty, one day even the presence of sin, you're freed because you are with Jesus in the death and in the rising. That's what it means to be a Christian. And this is all good news because it's something done for you. Jesus does not say, I did 95% of the work, you've got to get the final five. We were dead and he made us alive. We were passive, he was active. And so being a Christian is about good news, about what God in Jesus has done for his people. Now, here's where I want to close our sermon today. That's, you might say, the gospel. That's a declaration of what God and Jesus has done about our ultimate need, dead in sin, and his incredible kindness and grace made us alive with Jesus Christ. So here's how I want to conclude. If that gospel is at work in your life, if that good news has come into the center of your soul, what's going to happen? And more than that, What about for our church? Because remember, we're in a series talking about our church's vision and values. We're talking about the kind of church that we want to be. So if the gospel is always the center of Reality Church London, what kind of church are we going to be in this city? And here's the answer. I hope. I hope that if the gospel's in your life and if the gospel's in our church's life, we will be a community of joy, of humility, and good works. So let's take a minute to unpack those things. If the gospel's at the center, we become a people of joy, of humility, and good works. So first, joy. Marie LaGrange, she was an author, she once wrote that nothing fills a person with joy like knowing that they're loved. Nothing fills a person with joy like knowing that they're loved. And look with me at verse 4 again of Ephesians 2. You were dead, Paul says. You were dead in your sin, but... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. (laughs) Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he died on a cross, he rose again. He made us alive, he gave us new life, he gave us new birth. You say, that's amazing. God, why did he do it? The answer is, because of great love. The reason why Jesus did what he did for you was because he loves you. You realize that your being saved was not duty. It was delight. And until you understand, until I can actually grasp that Jesus delights in me, how would I ever delight in myself? Until I understand that Jesus looks at me with joy, how am I ever going to then share that love with other people? The message of the gospel is that Jesus loved you, and that's why he died for you. Now, as a minister, I officiate lots of weddings, and, you know, the best moment is always, right, the music is playing, everyone's standing, and the bride starts walking down the aisle. And when the bride is walking down the aisle, everyone, rightly so, is looking at her, but I know to always take at least a second and look at the groom's face. Because while everyone is looking at the bride and she's walking down the aisle, the groom is looking at his bride and he's going, this is the best day of my life. I mean, I don't deserve her. This is stunning. And he's overwhelmed with joy. Why? Because his bride, whom he really doesn't deserve, is making his way towards her. 
And he recognizes this love relationship is going to bring me incredible joy. Now, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 that when Jesus went to the cross, he did so with joy, the joy that was set before him. And for years, I read that passage, and I thought he was talking, the author was talking about a generic joy. Oh, Jesus was happy to save us. But then I remembered the Bible calls Jesus a bridegroom. What that means is Jesus, as he was on his way to the cross, had as much joy as a groom does on his wedding day. Except in this illustration, Jesus is the one who does the walking, and it's not down the aisle, it's on the road to the cross. But he does so with tremendous joy. Why? Because you gets, he gets you. He gets a bride. He gets the church. And so the first thing that I hope we see today, the first thing that if the gospel takes root in the center of our soul, is we become a church that is filled with joy because we know that we're loved. We know that we're delighted in by Jesus himself. And the cross is always the ultimate example of that the love of God for us. Second, not just joy, but humility. If Jesus has made you alive, you have no reason to boast. This is there in verses eight and nine. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Sometimes Christians, and I say this with as much honesty as I can, are incredibly arrogant and proud people. And the reason for that is because we think we have the truth, we, we know God, and so it's easy as a Christian to look down on others. Let me say, if you've ever actually experienced the gospel of Jesus Christ, you cannot be a proud or arrogant person. Because the gospel says it's all grace. God didn't save you because you were smart or moral or accomplished or put together. He saved you totally and purely because of grace. And if your salvation is from grace, then you have no reason to look down on any other person. You have no reason to be proud and to think of yourselves as more superior to anyone or even any group of people around you. It's not possible to be proud and arrogant if you've actually experienced salvation by grace. And so my hope is that as a church, we would be so rooted in the gospel that we become humble, that we become a little community in London that's filled with humility. And you know what humility looks like practically? Humility practically does not look like a bunch of people walking around in a kind of depressed state saying, woe is me, we're terrible, we're awful. You know, that's, not, that's, just, that's just fake pride because you're still focused on yourself. But real humility, you know what it looks like? Joy in others. It looks like someone who's actually able to go into a conversation and really pay attention to another person because you actually care about them and you actually are listening to what they have to say. I mean, this could be the kind of community we could be in our city. Joy, humility, and then finally, you can do good works. Look at the end of the passage, verse 10. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now, let me be as clear as I can. You're not saved by doing good works, but you are saved for doing good works. That is to say, you don't earn God's love by what you do, but because you already have it, because you've already received it, 
we become a community that can now live in this world to bring flourishing and healing, to make this world a little bit less broken, to actually do good works, to bring life and hope into our city. That's how the gospel works. Because we've been saved, we respond to God by giving ourselves to good works. This is what could be possible. And this is what we get to experience now as we come to the table in the Lord's Supper. So let's pray as we prepare our hearts. Our God, thank you so much for this passage. But now we pray as we continue reflecting and meditating on the truths we've heard, that we would be a community shaped by this gospel, changed by this gospel, and living out this gospel for your glory in our city. Make us a people of joy, of an awareness that we're loved, of deep humility, and a commitment to serving others. Do that now, we pray, in Jesus' name.